because we have a system in the United States, a healthcare system that's completely and perfectly designed to yield the results that we are getting today. Mm. It, it's a system that was built on the experimentation and exploitation of humans, marginalized humans in our society. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa DiDonato. And I'm Marion Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. This week on our next special COVID-19 episode of Amplify Nursing, we talk with Dr. Sasha James Contarelli. Whether leading the New York State Association of Licensed Midwives or teaching at the Yale School of Nursing, Dr. James Contarelli is bringing to light racial disparities in maternal morbidity and mortality. As co-chair of Governor Cuomo's Maternal Morbidity and Racial Disparity Task Force, she's using her experience to create policy change at a state and national level. We talk with her about her policy work, the added changes COVID-19 is placing on marginalized communities, and the need to be optimistic about the future. Dr. James Contarelli, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you study? Okay, uh, thank you. My name is Sasha James Contarelli, and I'm a midwife. I'm also the president of New York State Association of Licensed Midwives. I'm, I'm currently faculty at Yale School of Nursing at Yale University. I focus mainly on, uh, primarily on women's health and women's health issues, but my main area of interest for research has been maternal mortality and racial disparities. So in that vein, I co-chaired, uh, I was one of the co-chairs of Governor Cuomo's Maternal Mortality and Racial Disparities Task Force in New York State, which made recommendations for the governor to begin to address and tackle the crisis that we have in New York related to maternal mortality and racial disparities. I've also recently been on the Governor Cuomo's COVID-19 Maternity Task Force, looking specifically at issues related to maternal health during the pandemic. So you're busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. For, for those who aren't aware, can you talk to us a little bit about um, what exactly we mean when we say disparities in maternal morbidity, morbidity and mortality? So in the United States, we speak beyond having a high maternal death rate in the United States of about 26.1 humans per 100,000 uh, birthing people dying related to dying in the process of having a baby or after having a baby. We also have a great discrepancy in the, um, the types of people that are affected by maternal mortality 
and severe maternal morbidity. And what I mean when I speak about maternal morbidity, meaning the sequelae or issues that can be surrounding having a baby, such as having a hemorrhage, having an infection, having needing alternative surgeries or therapies, or um, having diabetes and hyper high blood pressure uh, in the instance of pregnancy and after childbirth. So the disproportionate effects on for these issues uh, are seen more in your black and brown women in the United States. So black people especially have a, a largely higher rate of maternal mortality and severe maternal morbidity than compared to their white counterparts of lesser education. So for instance, in New York City in and of itself, so the five boroughs that everybody likes to go visit, when you think of New York City and bright lights and big city, you have black women having an eight times higher rate that an educated, college-educated black woman, an eight times higher rate of dying related to pregnancy and childbirth as compared to a white woman with a high school education. Wow. That's... And in the country, yeah. And in yeah. the country, in the United States, you have black women with a college education uh, having a three to four times higher rate than a white woman with a high school education of dying related to pregnancy and childbirth. Wow. So in the past, we had these myths that um, getting educated and having access to good health care, what we perceive as good health care, was protective against uh, adverse effects in health, right? Right. Um, if I have access, if I'm educated and I'm well-informed, then I can, and I work hard and I have a good job, I can access good health insurance and access preventative care that would decrease my risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, um, and dying, right, essentially. Right. And if I am educated and informed, I'd have a better diet, I can um, pursue all the wonderful opportunities that we have in the United States, a good home, clean air, good food, but not for black women in the United States. There is no protective effect of education nor socioeconomic status. Actually, what we see is converse to that, the complete opposite. The more educated you are, and the more you have access to opportunities in the United States, the higher your risk is of actually succumbing to an, a, a comorbidity related to pregnancy and having a child. So why do we think that is? So what we've noticed and what we've known for a long time and been afraid to admit, and I'm actually happy that we're studying it now, is the long-term effects of racism and oppression and discrimination in the United States and the toll that has on the human body. So now we're actually seeing evidence and research focused on the generational effects of slavery, of racism, 
of discrimination, of oppression of people. So what what kind of recommendations have you made in order to combat this problem? So I'm glad you asked that question. So this is a multimodal or multi-pronged effect and uh, strategies that we are developing locally and actually nationwide because this is not something that came about overnight and or within the last 10 years. This is hundreds of years in the making. And so for that reason, we have to look at the systems that are in place and begin to address the issues within the systems that are already established. So for instance, uh, one of the things that I've been involved in is the CDC recently had a work group uh, to look at our extrapolation form that we that's um, standardized across the United States for maternal death. It's the maternal mortality review um, review abstraction form, also uh, commonly called the Maria form. And so a task force was developed in order to look at that extrapolation form and begin to insert tools and options for those extrapolating and really reviewing maternal deaths to identify areas of discrimination, areas of racism that may have uh, led to unequal treatment or communication that may have contributed to a maternal death. So we successfully did that just recently, and that form was recently updated and rolled out. So that when you're in another state and you have a maternal mortality review committee, really looking at a maternal death, and uh, there's areas of communication that that can be identified or missed opportunities or lags in care or um, cultural insensitivity or lack of cultural humility, uh, those are categories that we can capture now that may have contributed to a maternal death where you would have decrease in access to healthcare, um, lag in treatment plans, lag in the initiation of communication with family and family members uh, that would lead to someone's demise. Uh, so other than that, so we know that maternal mortality is just the tip of the iceberg. Underneath that, and that's where you get to the severe maternal morbidity, where you have multiple people that are suffering, that that are what we call near misses. Mm -hmm. So they survive maybe in spite of all of our care um, in that maybe they have a a severe maternal hemorrhage or hypertension that was uncontrolled or diabetes that was uncontrolled. And they survive this pregnancy and survive the birth but they still are walking around being affected by that entire, uh, that entire process of pregnancy and birth and not being fully aware of what really happened to their body and whether or not if they get pregnant again, would that happen again and could it lead to even more detrimental effects to them and possibly a death? So severe maternal morbidity is something that we really want to look at in order to cause a shift and make a shift and really, truly 
affect and decrease maternal mortality that we're seeing. Yeah, that seems like a daunting task, considering oh, yeah. all of the all of the things that are going into it. Oh yeah, because we have a system in the United States, a healthcare system that's completely and perfectly designed to yield the results that we are getting today. Mm. It, it's a system that was built on the experimentation and exploitation of humans, marginalized humans in our society um, for the betterment of the majority. And so the majority being white people, mm -hmm. you're marginalized humans in this country. And we've known this through evidence such as the Tuskegee uh, experiment mm -hmm. for many, many years were utilized in order to advance research and technology in the healthcare field. Uh, why Marion Sims statue was removed from Central Park, mm -hmm. right? We've advanced in healthcare, yes. However, while continuing to marginalize and experiment on uh, on members of our society that are of have don't have a voice, really. Right. So how has this current pandemic compounded the issues that we are already having? So you use a perfect word, compounded the issues. So it just underscores. So what we're seeing is within communities of color, so in Black and Hispanic communities and your marginalized communities, you see more effects of COVID-19, right? And, and where you see that and, and why that manifests is number one, again, because those members of your society are used to being oppressed, uh, are used to um, being afraid of the already system, healthcare system that's in place, you see a lack in access to care, a delay in access to care, and because the marginalized members of our community have are the un, forgotten members. You saw the decrease in supplies and efforts being applied to those parts of the communities that that are most effective. So a disproportionate disproportionate amount of things such as personal protective equipment. Uh, point of care testing or testing on points of entry to hospital, those areas that really those hospitals and institutions that service communities with the mainly black and brown people were, mm -hmm. the, were some of the last communities to have a distribution of PPE or personal protective equipment for your healthcare workers in that area. Mm -hmm. were the last ones to get what we call point of care testing or testing uh, access to testing for all members that were coming into those facilities, a delay in the processing of the testing. Um, so then you have, it just underscores 
what we already know about healthcare in this country for black and brown members of your uh, community members. Yeah, I I think that, I mean, this pandemic is highlighting many of the gaps that we have all over the place, but it's been, it's been really incredible to see how much the pandemic is highlighting um, the disparities that we have in our healthcare system. And I'm, I'm hoping not to say that this is a good thing to come out, you know, that it would be a good thing to have a pandemic, but if it highlights this to the point where it cannot, can no longer be ignored, then I have to say, I, th- I think it's probably a good thing that it's, that we're able to see this. So apparently I'm sure that's frustrating for you because it's something that's been apparent to you for a long time, considering this is what you've been looking at and studying. Um, but when it gets to the point that it's so blatant in the public consciousness, I feel like there's no other choice but to do something about it um, and and change it for the better. Well, you and I are both optimistic. Not everyone is optimistic. And, And again, what you're saying is absolutely correct. Not that we would want a pandemic, not that I like being in the middle of a pandemic or the effects of it, uh, and nor would I ever want any human to perish related to um, something so tragic as as this or in in, or in any way I don't wish that on anyone or any member mm-hmm. of my of this of this society however if there if the members that of this society that lost their lives related to this pandemic, if we can do serve do provide justice for their death would be for us to utilize this opportunity to have a better society to be better prepared for God forbid another pandemic in in many areas from education on up right uh to be better prepared for the effects of the long-term effects of a pandemic and to um, address some of the issues that we knew were already bubbling and but now are being definitely brought to the forefront and as you said can can be are glaring and and should not be ignored of course as as humans we can ignore whatever we want to ignore yeah. What we would hope is that we do not, and we learn, and and we become a better society because of it. Right. That's kind of what I'm hoping for. But I am yeah. a little bit of a pathological optimist, for sure. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, anyway, so... For those of us who are... I, I mean, I am in clinical practice. I do quite a bit of OB anesthesia. What... What are some of the things that as clinicians we can do at the bedside to offset some of the negative effects that we already know are built into the system? Oh, great question. And that's something that um, everybody can do, and, and not only clinicians, but lay people. When you begin to understand, you become aware of the issues that are underlying the the systemic issues that are underlying the problems that we see in the United States, Mm -hmm. 
once you recognize those, then you can, there are small changes you make in your everyday lives that contribute to changing the way this country has been, has been operating. So small things such as understanding that you have your own bias. Mm-hmm. All of us do, regardless of what our outer covering looks like. We're human. And those biases were formed, whether or not we are aware of them from the time we were born, right? And that's just human nature. So to recognize that you're not a perfect human would be, is key. So if once I recognize that I'm not perfect and I recognize that I do have biases, and to be in touch with whatever they are, then I begin to understand that that does affect how I present myself in clinical practice. It does affect how I treat other humans. So we all go into healthcare believing that we can make a change Mm -hmm. and we can contribute to the betterment of society. And we all do want that. But there somewhere along the lines begin, we're, we're conditioned to believe that we're a little bit better than others because we know a little bit more. It's just the nature of the beast. What we do need to begin to realize is that although we have education, that does not make us better than anyone else. And that when we come to the bedside, we look at that person as another member of our family. Mm -hmm. regardless of their outer covering. Would I not provide all options to my family, my cousin, my brother, my sister, good or bad? Would I not do that? Or would I tell them all their options and tell them that and, and, and let them make that decision on their own and respect them as humans? Right. Would I not want to understand if regardless of the medication or the, pers- the treatment regimen that I'm, I'm providing for you and you consistently return to me and it's not the effects, the intended effects are not what I'm seeing, would I not want to delve deeper and figure out is there something else that I'm missing or is my time so precious and am I so superior that I really could care less whether or not your the treatment regimen that I that I supposedly know should be beneficial to you is not is not really working for you. Wouldn't I delve into what other aspects of your life may be affected by this treatment regimen? Right? So you begin to when you start to realize that you're human, you have faults and everyone shows up in a space with imperfections you begin to really change the way your practice begins to change because you look at other aspects of the humanness in front of you other than them being a sum of parts. Mm -hmm. You realize that they're affected not only by what's physiologically manifesting, but also their environment, their home, their family, their communities. And it's a slow process. It, it's, and, by, and it's going to take a very long time for us to get to the point where we really treat individuals and families holistically 
mm-hmm. it, but it is something that we can start to do. And it's not hard. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think it's the basis of nursing. I think it's, it's what we do best as nurses. And unfortunately, and I, I think, you know, this is my very small experience, but I feel like as a profession in an effort to legitimize ourselves, we've pulled away from that holistic standpoint more toward, you know, a medical model, which is based on illness and, you know, whatever is presented in front of you at the time. And I feel like we've done ourselves a disservice that, you know, coming back to that very holistic piece of it is is what we do best and what makes us uh, so great at all the things that we do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Uh, it, understanding that nursing and and our subspecialties that we are in nursing, myself being in midwifery and you're, you're being in anesthesia, the philosophy and approach to healthcare is different than in medical school. Does it make it any better? Does it make it any worse? It's a different philosophy. Right. But the understanding there is that to understand differences and appreciate differences. So we see it even transcends into how we're educated. Uh, we've been we've been taught to believe that medicine is the only way, right? Mm-hmm. That going to a physician is the only way. That's the only option. And doctors know it all. And I'm not doctor bashing because I'm a child of one. Um, that's the only way in the United States. But uh, and and not understanding and appreciating all the other members of the healthcare team that that also uplift and support medicine, right? Right. And once you don't, once you do understand that philosophy and understand that approach and understand that everyone contributes to the betterment of health, then you really start to make change and affect change. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. I just want to kind of talk a little bit about some of your policy work that you've done um, and and what you're doing looking at the big picture of things. With policy work, so I'll start with, because I've done more of that in New York State, so I'll talk a little bit about New York State and the policy work that I've been included upon and, and, and been honored to be involved in. And um, when New York State... Mm, maternal mortality and racial disparities task force being involved in that was such an honor because we really as a task force we were able to really delve into multiple aspects that affect maternal mortality from community on up to our established hospital systems right and look at the multiple components that are involved in in affecting that um, affecting maternal mortality and severe maternal morbidity, and so we were charged with coming up with recommendations. So there were multiple recommendations, but we we came up with the top ten that we would we wanted really to work on it in the very beginning to 
policies that would start to begin to affect change. And so the top one was in New York State, we did not have an established maternal mortality review board that was statewide that was protective, that really looked at, delved deep into each maternal mortality review case and came up with de-identified recommendations that could affect policy change. And so what we did was uh, rallied for that and we lobbied for that and we were able to get that um, put into a law, put into the governor's budget and, and, and law that we would have a maternal mortality review board that would be funded for years to come, right? Because you need funding behind that or else any little task force or anything else would then disappear or go away once the funding runs out, right? So we wanted that to be sustainable. So that was the top thing. And then to establish a method and a repository for us to utilize this de-identified information that we would get from these persons that lost their lives during pregnancy and birthing and do them justice by utilizing learning from their deaths and being able to really affect policy change. So that was the second thing. Then we also looked at there are many folks in, in, in New York that really want to join the healthcare workforce, different aspects, to be physicians, to be nurses, to be midwives, to be healthcare workers, to um, psychologists, sociologists. And they're hindered because there are barriers to education, especially for black and brown um, members of our society, right, on um, immigrant members that may not have the, the access to money and to uh, higher education. So you wanted to make a pathway to make it easier to diversify your workforce, right, because studies show that when you have culturally congruent members of your healthcare workforce, um, patients seem to fear better. Right. Right. So mm -hmm. in order to, to diversify that, how do we do that? So one of the ways is to um, create more scholarships for your city colleges and your city universities that would target uh, your marginalized members of your community, your black and brown and immigrant members of your communities in order for them to have a pathway to uh, to access a higher education. Mm -hmm. Also. Saying that members that are intended to go into healthcare, then for those that are already in healthcare and may be paying off uh, multiple student loans and may want to advance their education, uh, but they're working, providing for a family, multiple jobs, uh, have a pathway for loan forgiveness so that other members of your community that are already in healthcare can continue to advance their education and their ability. So to provide loan forgiveness for um, people that want to become physicians, nurse, midwives, CRNAs, mm -hmm. get a PhD in psychology or soci uh, social work mm -hmm. in order for them to continue to move up the ladder, right? Because right. then that also enhances your society, increases your workforce, increases your access, enhances your society, right, as a whole. Yeah. 
And also, they, so there are multiple points. So midwives are, are reimbursed in New York State at 85% for Medicaid, at 85% of the amount that a physician is reimbursed for the same exact care in billing. So one of the other recommendations was to increase parity in care, parity in reimbursement. So if you have parity in reimbursement, then you also say it's a message to society and to members of that workforce, we value your contributions to the healthcare team if you have parity in reimbursement for the same care across the board. Um, so those are some of the recommendations that we came up with in order to start to begin to combat uh, maternal mortality and racial disparities. We also wanted to have bias and cultural humility training from members of the healthcare teams um, from your suppliers to healthcare on up to your CEOs and your presidents in, in, your, in your established healthcare team. Because we, like I said before, uh, some people think that they're perfect. Um, some people think that because they have more education, that makes them better than other members of society. But there's a lack of recognition of bias. And this is something that each human has to learn. It was part of my journey of learning my own biases. But I can tell you that even becoming aware that I do have bias and becoming aware of what they are, I know for a fact that made me a better human, which makes me a better provider. Mm -hmm. So to have bias training and cultural humility training for all members of your healthcare team, and also to move that to education. So not only when they're already providers, but to start that from when they these these people are in school. So and then then it led to the conversation of well, in what aspect and what level of it their education do we begin to start about to start to talk about bias and cultural humility? And one would argue it goes all the way back to elementary school. Uh, but for us, really, to really have a realistic goal, we talked about beginning at the high school level, mm -hmm. where you talk about bias and cultural humility, uh, and then really target to start in high school and really target when you're in higher education, for those, especially for those members that are seeking um, to major in in healthcare, so that's the governor's task force for maternal mortality and racial disparities. I already talked about the uh, the Maria abstraction form with the CDC, and now for the governor's task force related to COVID, opening up and the recognition that not all birthing people want to birth in a hospital and understanding and valuing that um, members of our community would like alternative areas in which they and places in which they would like to birth. So, mm -hmm. and to incorporate that into those 
aspects into your healthcare landscape, such as birth centers, home births, those types of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How are the birth centers dealing with the pandemic? So in New York, at least, we only have, we have two supposedly in the boroughs and uh-huh. three in the state. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, um, New York State is very unique in that there really has not been birth centers in New York State. And w- that's, that's, we're trying to change that. Right. Because there, there's been a demand, there has been for many years a demand in having birth centers. They're inundated. They've been overwhelmed with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They are having to unfortunately turn um, patients away. Of course, this is anecdotal information of um, home of birth centers. And then who's more affected, even more affected are your home birth midwives who are normally get one to two calls possibly a month. They were getting, they began to receive over 100 calls a day for women wanting to birth at home because of the fear of going into a hospital and possibly contracting COVID-19. So again, underscoring the disparities we already have, we have persons that don't want to necessarily birth in a hospital. How are we ensuring as a healthcare workforce that those members, we address the needs and desires of those members of our community that would like alternative options to where they birth and with whom they birth, right? Right. So that's, that's what we're looking at, yes. Yeah, another huge challenge, everyone mm-hmm. wanting to stay far away from the hospital. <laughs> now, that's not to say hospitals are a bad place, and please don't get me wrong. No, 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 no. I, I, yeah. I should have clarified. I meant during the pandemic when you right. know that there's people with COVID in the hospital. So that mm-hmm. I'm sure that is, that, um, you know, is another advantage to going to a birthing center, that you're, you're not going to be near anyone who's um, sick, or at least that's what you're hoping for. Yes. <clears throat> Um, well, I, I want to be mindful of your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, um, speaking with us today. This has been fantastic. It's all such really, really important work, um, that you're doing. And, um, I, I hope that we can help to, um, you know, get it out there. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me been wonderful talking to you. Uh, we could continue the conversation for hours, but <laughs> in being mindful of each other's time, this was great. Thank you. <laughs> Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa Donato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast 
and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can, please do us a solid and rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.